Shit Platypus Says, episode 43. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary on the left. My name is Pamela Nogales. I am one of your hosts. We have a three-part episode for you today. In the first, I sit down with our Toronto member, Cam Hardy. We talk about the recent trucker convoys, the ongoing protests against the vaccine mandate, which are currently spreading to other locations, including the United States and New Zealand. We discuss what the left has been saying about the protests, how they conceive of the role of the left in constituting a working class movement, and what, if anything, do they have to say about the vaccine mandates. In our second segment, Andreas Wintersperger, a co-host and European correspondent, sits down with Amir Sturm. Amir is a member of Jungelinke, an Austrian leftist youth organization, currently working within the Communist Party of Austria, the KPÖ. They discuss the history of the party, its political self-understanding, and the relationship between Jungelinke and the Communist Party. Finally, our Shit Platypus Does team, Lisa in Leipzig and Rebecca in London, take up the highlights of Platypus in the 2021 year. They sit down with our American, Australian and Greek members to take stock of how Platypus has engaged the left over the legacy of Occupy, the meaning of capitalism and the politics of COVID-19. That's it for our episode. The Platypus-Affiliated Society will be hosting its international convention, its annual international convention 2022 in Chicago during the first week of April. Our members will be traveling from around the world to come and discuss the important issues on the left today. We are back live in person, not on Zoom. So if you would like to join us, feel free to look for more information on our website at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. More information on the convention should be up soon. Everyone is welcome. We look forward to seeing you there and the many social gatherings that follow. As always, if you like the podcast, share it, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out so that more listeners can be blessed by all of this knowledge. Enjoy! Police have failed to clear a major bridge crossing between the US and Canada. It's been blocked by truckers protesting vaccine rules. Police persuaded some drivers to move their vehicles, but they later reconvened. The weekend has also brought a fresh wave of protesters into the Canadian capital, Ottawa, where a core group of truckers continue to occupy the downtown area. Taking their outrage... To the government's doorstep. It's been over two weeks now that the Freedom Convoy has camped in the Canadian capital, Ottawa. 
a plan to force unvaccinated truck drivers crossing between Canada and the US to quarantine sparked the initial rally. But the demonstrators insist the blockade goes way beyond opposing the rules on inoculations. We're not here about vaccinations and uh, you know, I can tell you 90% of the truckers here are likely vaccinated uh, but we're here for freedom of choice. Police could not move the protesters off a border crossing. It's one of the major corridors into the United States. The blockade has affected trade and travel between the two countries. It's also inspired support rallies over the border to Buffalo in New York State and as far away as New Zealand. In the Netherlands, truckers rolled through The Hague and thousands of French police were deployed to stop the convoy of freedom from entering Paris. But some protesters made it. They took aim at vaccine passes and President Emmanuel Macron, but also tapped into the discontent over rising prices. Our rights, our freedoms are violated. We just have the right to work, to spend and to be taxed. The price of diesel increases, wheat, sugar, insurance increases, everything increases. Police cleared the streets using tear gas, but this has not ended the protests. The Freedom Convoy's next stop is the European Union's power base in Brussels. Hi, Cam. How are you? I'm, I'm well. How are you doing, Pam? I'm doing all right. So I, I heard that um, your, your country is in a state of emergency. Is that, is my that right? my province is in a state of emergency. Yeah, and my country's capital is in a state of emergency. Uh huh. Um, but I'm not entirely sure if some of the other layers of state of emergency related to the pandemic are still operative. But this is certainly a new state of emergency in both the country's capital and in my province, which is Ontario. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, so recently they were supposed to, the truckers were supposed to leave the occupation of the Ambassador Bridge, right? That they were given an ultimatum. I think it was like last night. And they did not leave. They're still there as far as I can tell. That is ongoing. Okay. Uh, so the injunction was in place for 7 p.m. and then pushed to midnight. And it appears now that they've started arresting people on the Ambassador Bridge. Okay, so things maybe have come to a head yeah, and uh, our prime minister put out a somewhat uh, threatening statement saying, uh, you know, especially those with children should 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 watch it. <laughs> yeah, so. I heard that. I'm sure that's going to uh, go down really well. <laughs> We're going to shoot down the bouncy castles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of a, a different tone than I've come to expect from him. Uh huh. Yeah, I saw the the debate between him and the oppositional leader, and he. He said that the opposition, the conservatives are supporting the protest, that they encouraged it, and they didn't seem to take a stand against that in the debate. So I don't know to what extent that's true. The, the conservatives have their own issues right now um, because they definitely sympathize to some extent with the, the critics of the, the lockdowns and mandates. Yeah. But they also... Uh, recognize as a responsible party of 
government that you can't have uh, a bridge that does $300 million a day in trade closed. Um, right. So they have basically fired their parliamentary leader, the leader of the party, uh, and now are going to be picking a new leader in the coming time. And one of the, one of the the candidates is uh, is certainly critical of the of the lockdown measures and so on. I think the terms of the protests are like we're Canadians, right? Like there's a lot of flags, there's a lot of emphasis on the rights that they believe that they have. Um, I think I saw this massive banner in the Ambassador Bridge uh, occupation that says like we are demanding our constitutional freedoms. Um, the language that they're using seems to be about the guarding of certain rights that they believe that they already have, that government is intruding. Is that right? Would you say that? Yeah, we have a, a constitution and a charter of rights that was um, a product of Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, and his repatriation of the constitution. Because Canada's original constitution is an act of British Parliament uh, from 1867. Um, so the difference perhaps between our Charter of Rights and the American Bill of Rights is that if it's inconvenient, it can be ignored by a province or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's not, it's not uh, ironclad. And I would imagine that is kind of looming in the background of some of this uh, pandemic stuff, aside from just the fact that states of emergency give exceptional powers to uh, to the government. A lot of the funding that was being sent to the truckers was being seized through government authorities. Like that seemed really wild to me, uh, to the extent that it's just like their property given to them. And that the way in which it was inter interjected, like the way the funds were frozen, was by government dealing with these companies like GoFundMe or um, I forget now the other one. There's a second company that stepped in after the funds were frozen from um, GoFundMe. And then that company also, you know, they were threatened. Um, legal action was going to be taken against them. So... The assets were frozen, and now many of the protesters, those who are organized, have decided to go crypto. That just seemed really wild to me. I just think it's just very strange um, exercise of power. Yeah, it's it's obviously very arbitrary. And part of the argument used about the funding is that this is um, bad actors from uh, especially the American right who are funding this. Mm. Uh, which I think uh, even our prime minister has mentioned that half of the money apparently comes from the United States, which does mean half of the money doesn't. When you're talking about millions of dollars from people, that is still a significant amount from uh, from Canadians. But yeah, I, that is certainly uh, one of the, the rationales is that the, the Trump's uh, base are funding this insurrection in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Trudeau has made this claim that there's been swastikas and Confederate flags um, completely. Like, I think this has been spread on Twitter and like, but there's no there's no evidentiary support um, of this. And even if there were, let's say, marginal extremists among the crowd, it seems like the great majority of people are those who are just demanding taking down the mandates and are not advocating violence. Um 
you know, unless now we consider stopping goods as a form of violence, which I guess to some people that that is the case, right? People are like, well, you know, they're stopping, you're, get, you're getting in the way of the economy is a form of violence. Um, and these protests are dangerous in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, harm and violence are both words that have had serious uh, mission creep over the last few years. So, uh, you know, the disruptions that are being caused and uh, the real inconvenience of, of, of these protests is being uh, cast as a form of, of uh, violence or even terrorism. Yeah, I guess Toyota and Ford have been hit somewhat by not being able to move auto parts. And that, to some extent, has made people pay attention to this. For a while, none of the American media outlets were reporting on the protests. Um, And just of the last four days, that's changed. Have you heard of this phenomenon of the police knocking at people's doors in Canada and following up on them because they posted support for the truckers on Facebook. I saw a video, but only one video of this, and it uh, raised a lot of concerns about the extension of policing powers on the north of the border. I saw a bit of that, and uh, it felt very British. I feel like that's the thing they do all the time over there. But uh, it's I, I haven't really heard of this being widespread. They certainly spend a lot of time combing through social media. Toronto police blocked off tons of streets in the city on the hunch that there was something big happening this weekend. Uh, You know, they moved big cinder blocks and dumpsters to block off uh, areas from where trucks could uh, idle. Mm -hmm. And they've been seizing uh, gasoline too, right? The police? In Ottawa, yes. Uh, And they set out a warning in Toronto that if you're carrying around cans of gas, that's dangerous and you shouldn't do it. Yeah, Uh, you're aiding and abetting. There did wind up being a protest today in Toronto, but it was only a few hundred people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they certainly, you know, they they are looking at all this uh, online chatter uh, and uh, acting based on it. Mm-hmm. I haven't really heard anything on the left covering the convoys. Has there been anything on the left? Yes. Uh, you know, there's... Uh, the take machine at Jacobin has uh, published a couple pieces about um, uh, of the class character of it. Mm. It's been uh, this kind of um, discussion of what it means to be working class and whether uh, one needs to be the employee of someone else or be a subcontractor who owns their own vehicle. And certainly, yeah, that's what's said is that because someone owns a, a fairly expensive piece of equipment, they're not uh, really working class in the way that someone who only is selling their hourly labor is. And, uh, and how, um, you know, real truckers have uh, certain demands for better working conditions and pay. And that these sort of, uh, these sort of protests that are for more a- apparently abstract things like bodily autonomy that the protesters want are not representative of the the authentic class expression of the working class yeah um and uh, the similar the similar sort of things have been written by some of the sects you know our communist party has said that uh these protest groups should be potentially criminalized uh, 
And there has been a bit of the sort of activist, anti-fascist mobilization, not in the sense of, um, you know, blocking up and going out to fight, but certainly uh, counter-protesting under the saying uh, that they're going to defend the, the hospital workers and so on who are threatened by the, you know, the, the freedom convoy or so-called freedom convoy protesters. So the left is essentially justifying the police breakup of the convoy. Yes, but uh, they're, you know, they were saying that way before it started. So that's uh, yeah. the avant-garde. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The tip of the spear for the state. Abolish the police, but also keep the police so that these yeah. people will be in check. Abolish the police, but also the fascists are coming, so we need the police. <laughs> yeah, just the uh, fascism should be illegal and that's it. Yeah, well, you know, when somebody comes knocking on my door after I've posted support for anything in the world, like when the police comes at my door to knock and ask me about why I posted this uh, support on Facebook, that sounds a lot more like fascism. Yeah, and this is, you know, like I wouldn't overestimate the left's influence on current events in Canada at all. Uh, they can definitely set the tone of some conversations, but that's about it. But there is, you know, the emergency powers that our premier in Ontario have enacted or that he has enacted. Uh, I have a feeling that they won't be temporary powers and that, yeah. uh, you know, something like disrupting the transfer of goods and, goods and services yeah. might apply to cracking down on uh, these protesters on the bridge today. But it'll probably apply to a picket line. Yeah. Uh, in the in the coming future, or indigenous land defenders uh, who are disrupting, you know, a, a rail line or something like that. Yeah, it's it's really short sighted, but it's just the kind of reactive uh, posturing that I've come to expect. Yeah, there's exceptions. There's uh, individuals uh, who certainly don't buy into this, and um, you know, the one or two of the small organizations have some critical things to say but uh in general like who the like the the one that comes to mind is the communist league like the uh the pathfinder tendency in the united states the socialist workers party i see but uh they are fairly small Mm -hmm. even by the standards of the you know the the marxist left in canada the one thing just i would add uh in terms of the controversy over our owner driver is working class. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, a strange discussion. Uh, and I saw, you know, one person who's an expert on who's working class, Doug Henwood, uh, weighing mm-hmm. in on this from Park Slope. And I thought it was amusing because the, the people who organized the Teamsters in the first place and turned it into a national union, Farrell Dobbs being one of them, who was mm-hmm. eventually the leader of the Socialist Workers Party in the United States. They didn't have this dilemma of owner drivers. You know, it was basically organize them before they organize against you. So while they were organizing the fleet drivers, like the hourly employees of the shipping chains, they also found all these independent drivers and got them to join the Teamsters too. And they wound up, you know, through this very militant organizing, building the Teamsters into the largest union in the United States. Of course, you know, it it got turned into one of the most powerful rackets in the United States after that. Uh, but that's a different story. The Teamsters have denounced the protests now. Yes, yes. And now, because of their uh, legacy of ineffective 
organizing and negotiating concessions and corruption and everything else. They only represent, I think, about 5% of Canadian transportation drivers. Yeah. I guess, like, this is part of what Platypus talks about when we say that this confusion on the left as to how to constitute a working class um, political movement that in part it would have to take up the constitution of that working class, right? So it's not about um, an already existing sociological group of people and that they will express uh, demands for the left, but that the left itself needs to constitute that class, needs to help to constitute it. And so when you give in to this division and you say, well, these people own their own means of production, they own the, the trucks and then those don't. And you're trying to look for the authentic left as if it already exists among those people with their specific sociological status as opposed to recognizing that it's absent. Yeah, that's a far more intelligent way of putting it than I could. The one the example that comes to mind for me is someone who, you know, is a grower for a big agribusiness company. Like, let's say they raise chickens for Tyson. The chickens arrive at their farm and they're picked up from their farm. They buy the feed from Tyson or from someone else. Every point in in their production is dominated by a big company. They own the title to the land. They're heavily in debt. Like, whether or not that person is the proletariat in some sort of sense of someone looking at just do they own the means of production, they're clearly proletarianized. You know, this is yeah. not this is not the 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 bourgeois of the 19th century. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cam, for trying to make sense of some of what's going on in relationship to the left to the extent that we can. Just It's becoming more and more difficult to understand the present in those terms. Um, so I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good one. is the KPÖ. KPÖ stands for Kommunistische Partei Österreichs, and that means Communist Party of Austria. The Communist Party of Austria is actually one of, I think, the third oldest communist party in the world, which sort of still exists in terms of organizational continuity. It was founded in November 1918, and it has made a certain kind of comeback, if you want to call it uh, that, within the last year. So there were a bunch of events that put the, the Communist Party of Austria into the center of developments within the landscape of the Austrian left. Um, there was the party convention in June 2021, where they elected a new leadership. Then, of course, there was the election of the uh, Municipal Council of Graz. Graz is the second biggest town in Austria where the Communist Party um, got the highest amounts of votes. And now this town, Graz, has an officially communist mayor, which made uh, the news world over. Then you have the, the Federal Congress of the so-called Young Left, in German, Junge Linke. The Young Left, were, they, they were refounded in 2018, and they're now the fastest growing uh, leftist youth organization in Austria. And on this um, federal congress they just held, they decided to um, move closer to the Communist Party. So they are not yet their official youth organization, but they defined themselves as being part of the same communist movement, 
but still remaining organizational independence. But these are all sort of developments that led to the KPÖ being sort of the center of attention at the moment, which also means that, for example, you have millennial leftists who are now joining the KPÖ, but who would never dreamed about joining the party just two or three years ago. I'm here today with Amir Sturm. Amir Sturm is based in Vienna, Austria, and he is an active member of the KPÖ, that is the Communist Party of Austria. He is also part of the Vienna leadership of Junge Linke. Junge Linke, that means uh, Young Left, is an independent leftist youth organization uh, refounded in 2018. Hi Amir, thanks for uh, being on the podcast. Hi, uh, thanks a lot for having me. Looking forward. Cool. How did you come to the left? What's your history on the left and what made you turn to uh, leftist politics? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, classic. So back in 2015, I had in the previous year already um, been reading some literature, uh, anarchist, Marxist, kind of eclectic in, in my taste. And I had a friend, a couple of friends who were active communists, Trotskyists back then, and I knew they were communists, but before that time I didn't really care. But then, kind of in that time, that was the time where Syriza and uh, all this raffle about Greece and also this uh, so-called refugee crisis or some like international but also nationally relevant political uh, events. Then I kind of, yeah, decided actually I'm reading all this stuff, I should do something. And so I, I turned to my friends and was, hey, aren't you, you're a communist, right? So what's up? Maybe I can come. And I did come and then I was in a couple of Trotskyist organizations, yes, a couple of Trotskyist organizations uh, during the years and we did have some very nice projects, for example, organizing campaigns in, in hospitals, uh, which peaked in 2015, where we uh, got a thousand nurses out on the streets to protest for their uh, interests, but then a lot kind of declined. The, the activity declined and we were set back to the status of a, of a sect, really. I don't know, I think I can say that, to the status of a sect. I'm not naming any names, so I can say it. Yeah, and then I was incre became increasingly frustrated with the status we have and the yeah, irrelevance, really, that we have. Ten people sitting in a room talking about the Spanish Civil War without anyone caring about what we do. Then I was just frustrated and I didn't really see any organization or any any project that I would want to join. And then I kind of saw this uh, project, Junge Linke, which in uh, 2018 uh, was refounded, as you said. There existed Junge Linke before, but this was a, a refoundation, a new start, so to speak. I was skeptical at first. I was a bit in my orthodox Trotskyist mind. I initially rejected everything that they, <laughs> that they did. But then I was increasingly interested and I started to join. And we had this, we still have, do uh, have this structure of a district group. So we are organized locally. And I joined my like local branch. And we built a really nice district group. And it was a really positive experience. And I sort of grew into it. And now, yeah, I'm in the Vienna leadership and doing more than ever for it. Before we continue talking about Junge Linke, I'd like to talk about the KPÖ. KPÖ stands for Kommunistische Partei Österreichs. 
that means in English Communist Party of Austria. Um, because you're also an active member of the KPÖ. The KPÖ has gained considerable traction within the Austrian left over the course of, let's say, the last one and a half years. Also, um, the second biggest town in Austria, Graz, now has a quote-unquote communist mayor. LKK, she's uh, the, the, the mayor of Graz now, and she's a member of the KPÖ. This was also discussed in world news, basically. Also, there were terms like Leningrad or Stalingrad flowing through German-speaking media. Could you um, recapitulate what has been going on within the KPÖ over the last year? And what do you think are the reasons for its recent uh, quote-unquote success? Okay, where to, to start? Okay, so maybe I should have mentioned that I joined uh, KPÖ exactly two years ago, so uh, shortly before uh, KPÖ kind of gained this traction uh, nationally. Um, so I kind of saw these processes, but I think, I think it's actually necessary to go back in time a bit to kind of understand what this thing, KPÖ, what it is or what it was and what it is in the process of becoming. So before 8990, KPÖ was a relatively true to Moscow party, classical M ML party, and was evidently in a, as all communist parties, but the KPÖ especially in a huge crisis in 1990. And it kind of struggled to find an identity, also struggled to find a program and find an orientation, what they should do. And in these nine, 90s, thousands of members left the party, there were struggles for, for leadership, also struggles for the program. And what kind of happened there was a weird mix of some traditionalist ML elements who were always a minority since uh, these times and a larger faction of people who oriented towards a yeah, broad left conception. Already in 1990, people were advocating for the universal basic income so a really weird mixture of positions like completely complete loss of orientation in that time already since i think it was 1992 in styria it is necessary to kind of differentiate this and specifically talk about styria um, because styria that is the province where graz lies where this uh, recent election result uh, has happened And in Styria, the comrades kind of, I would say, had a more productive process of finding a new orientation. And they kind of experimented with, I would say, something you could call practical solidarity. And what they established back then was the tenants emergency line, Mieternotruf, where tenants who are in distress, who have problems with their landlord and stuff, uh, need, need like help, uh, can call. And yeah, they get direct unbureaucratic help there. And, and this was kind of their main topic, housing in general. They profiled along this line and kind of slowly but surely built up structures of practical solidarity and also of a, a following in the working class, really, because that was the target group, of course. While in the rest of Austria, KPÖ was yeah, lost, really. I, There's no other way to say it. It was lost. It was still in this toxic dynamic of broad left basic income and other random theories that are en vogue at that time and had really found an orientation. Uh, and yeah, and one of the other tenants of, so to speak, uh, National KPÖ 
program was to always find alliances. So the process of party building was really neglected, which is uh, in contrast to the Styrians, they focused, they really focused on this party building. Of course, they had alliances, but that was not their prime goal. In the case of the National Cup, it really was its prime goal. It was like a loss of self-confidence. It was like, oh, we lost in 1989-90, now we kind of have to find alliances, we can't do anything alone. In this dire state, it kind of vegetated on. I'm, I'm sorry to, to put it like that, but uh, I just have to. Um, yeah, well, well, in Graz and in Styria, not only in Graz, but also in, in smaller towns, in, in Styria, KPÖ has, has had a lot of success. Uh, in regional parliaments, in city parliaments. Nationally, there wasn't happening anything. And in, in national media, they were saying, oh, KPÖ, this can only be a local phenomenon, regional, provincial phenomenon. It has nothing to do with the party, nothing to do with communism. Even some KPÖ members started to believe this uh, fairy tale, that this would be the case. But then, in yeah last year, there was the reorientation process, there was the party conference, national party conference, where a new leadership was elected, which specifically focused on party building. You, you, you mentioned this new leadership that was elected at the, the party convention. I think it was in June last year. There were two or there are two people within the new leadership that were actively involved in the refoundation of Junge Linke as well, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I was about to say this. This can really only be understood if we look at Junge Linke and its uh, refoundation processes uh, since 2018. So yeah, two people who are now um, central figures in KPÖ come from Junge Linke are really I would say key strategists and key ideologues from, from Junge Linke. Generational-wise part of the millennial left, right? Yeah. I always felt that what Junge Linke does has a bit of a Styrian feel to it. This clear focus on building an organization, alliances should also aid this process of party building and are not a, a reason of its own, but are to be seen tactical and strategically. And also this focus on a very a clear focus on the needs of working people, in the Linke case, of course, uh, uh, young people um, and, and their most pressing needs and the um, creation of solidary structures. What you're saying is that one of the reasons for the recent success of um, the KPÖ is its orientation towards, um, let's say, the Styrian model of practical solidarity focusing on campaigns that are not exclusively meant to rally people up for the next election cycle, right? Because you mentioned that it was the Styrian part of the party that historically remained or tried to remain true to its historical heritage of being a, a Marxist-Leninist, true to Moscow, faithful to Moscow party. How does that relate to, to the idea of practical solidarity you mentioned? I'm having a really hard time finding a strategic connection to specific historical examples. History does play a role, um, of course, and to some part it is a role that is imposed on us by media. For example, you, you mentioned it, uh, Graz is now Stalingrad, so of course in, in interviews the, one of the first questions always, Stalin, Gulag, blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, that obviously comes 
and what the Styrian comrades or what, what LKK usually answers and what I, in my experience, is a sensible answer also on the street when people ask you that. Um, yeah, how do you, what do you say to that then? Um, they or we would usually say that we are the Austrian communists, we are in the tradition of the Austrian labor movement and we are proud of the traditions that were established by our uh, political ancestors, the posit, we kind of stay true to the positive and the negative things that happened. Uh, we are proud of what the communist movement in Austria achieved uh, in strikes in the First Republic, in the Second Republic and in the, in the Austrian resistance against the two fascisms. That is kind of it, so this strategic connection to historical uh, occurrences in the labor movement, yeah, I'm having a really hard time to, to find them. I think this is a really new, new process. You mentioned that, that, of course, history plays a role, right? I mean, the Communist Party of Austria is, at least in, in organizational terms, or at least nominally, I think the third oldest Communist Party in the world. It was founded in November 1918. What do you, what do you think one can learn from this very orthodox Marxist-Leninist history of the party for today? I would maybe see the role KPÖ played in the Second Republic, that is after World War II, um, Second Republic of Austria, I would see it in, in really a global context. So on the one hand, the context of the Cold War, of course, so I don't know, that kind of goes without saying. I said that KPÖ was a, an orthodox and very true to Moscow party, so kind of this Cold War dichotomy, so that's trivial but important to mention and also the international economic boom after the war and its effects it had on, on society and especially on the labor movement so globally this boom had a yeah I would say not not everywhere but in, in many developed western countries it had a paralyzing effect on the labor movement and especially so in Austria so Austria had a very rich tradition in the labor movement in the socialist labor movement very strong organizations which were also very daring to fight at least in the first republic but exactly exactly this mentality of being daring to fight and being organized to 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 fight was gradually lost after the war during these economic boom years in this paralysis of austrian corporatism the so-called uh, social partnership and in this atmosphere combined with this cold war dichotomy the role KPÖ played was marginal at best. It had, in, in some times, it had actually, I think, between three and 400,000 members, but that was in the occupation times, and then it kind of went down and came to a halt until 1989. So from the 60s until the late 80s, KPÖ was kind of stagnating in membership. And I think in this paralyzed state the Austrian society was in in that times there was kind of there was kind of no, nowhere to go really or it, it at least KPÖ had nowhere to go in this state it was in in this condition it was in I think it's important to see that both these factors are now at least objectively they are now gone which opens up a huge window of opportunity especially after the uh, neoliberal devastation since the 1980s which came a bit delayed in Austria, Every come, everything comes a bit delayed in Austria. 
you said that the end of the, the Cold War, the end of the Soviet Union now, 30 years ago, actually opened up this, this window of opportunity we see now, if I understood you correctly. Well, that as well, but I think objectively this corporatist paralysis of the labor movement is now its, its uh, objective material economical uh, basis is in a sense gone now after decades of destruction of these uh, structures of, of corporatism. I mean, they're still somewhat intact, but it cannot be compared to back in the 50s, 60s. Objectively, they might be gone, but the, the thing is that subjectively in the working class, this paralysis is still ongoing. So the, the labor unions and generally the organizations of the working class, they have a very limited mobilizing factor and this is exactly this frustration in the Austrian working class and Austrian society at large I would I would say that I would yeah date back to this paralysis which had I guess an, an objective objective root which is economic boom and corporatist uh, management of the state and society which is now to some extent gone but this paralysis is still there and I think For example, the rise of right-wing populism in Austria, which started in the 80s already, um, is kind of a, an after-effect of this paralysis, that the working class has nowhere to go. It has nowhere to go, but is also kind of, yeah, still paralyzed and inactive. And this is exactly, so I would rather say, yeah, sure, the end of the Cold War dichotomy is also a factor that kind of opens this window of opportuni opportunity, but I would say... This other factor is, in an economical and social sense, more, more pressing as a window of opportunity that now really shows the need for a communist party, shows the need for a real working class party. It is more necessary than ever, I would say. How would you say does what is going on at the moment within the KPÖ fit into a sort of more international context of the left today? Are there any other organizations, groups, processes that the KPÖ is orienting themselves towards? Okay, yeah, so I kind of already touched on that. So we said maybe first the negative definition of that. So we kind of said, yeah, it's not this traditionalist ML orientation. So it's not akin to, say, Communist Party of Great Britain. It's also a communist party, but it's not akin to, to what, what uh, these guys are doing. But it's also not this uh, Euro-communist What does tradition. that mean for you, like a traditional Marxist-Leninist party orientation? What would you say does that entail and in what way, in what way is the KPÖ different? Parties like the Communist Party of Great Britain, for instance, as I would say, for example, historically. Historically, I would say these types of parties do not acknowledge, in a sense, the defeat of, of socialism. And that's important to say defeat of socialism. It's not about it being inferior as, uh, to capitalism as, as portrayed in, in all media. It's not about its inferiority, but it was a defeat objectively. It lost. It lost the contest. This is not really acknowledged, I feel, in the, in the programs and especially in the, in, the, in the praxis and results in a type of approach to society in their respective countries that has an overly focuses on the fact of being, so to speak, on the right side of history, the objective necessity of socialism, and not really 
seeing being kind of blind to the fact that today, after these, uh, what I described earlier, this, this uh, paralysis of the working class in the post-war years and the neoliberal devastations after that and the situation that we are now in, that this is not really acknowledged on a sub subjective basis. That it is focused on, okay, objectively there is the necessity of socialism, the revolutionary subject, the working class will at some point realize that, but what I'm kind of missing there is this, this focus on, on even reaching out to the working class. I mean, it sounds kind of, kind of trivial, but many of these parties, I feel, have no strategy of creating a working class basis by, by, by having, and, and this would require this acknowledgement of, on the one hand, the defeat, and on the other hand, the objective and especially subjective situation that we are in right now. And from this should result, um, yeah, specific strategies. Where do you see the KPÖ within the next five years? What should it be? Where should it be? In an, after, the, after the next five years, okay, that gives me a bit of a, a, a vagueness to uh, be a bit more dreamy. Um, I think it should be a genuine working class party from its base, but also from its membership. I think that's really something that we have to have to tackle and that's important. And I think this is a keyword that actually didn't uh, didn't come come up in this in this whole podcast. And I think it's uh, necessary to name it a, a really important keyword that is trust. That is really a, a key aspect of all the activity that, that we are doing in Junge Linke as, in, as well as in, in KPÖ. And that is the key aspect of the success of the Styrian KPÖ, that is trust. Trust in wide sections of the working class. Trust in, on the one hand, trust in the party. Trust that this is honest, really, sounds trivial, but yeah, trust in the party. But also trust of the working class in itself. Trust in itself being able to achieve change, as vague as it sounds. But this vague feeling is something that I think we build on and that we are lacking outside of Styria right now. And I think this is something that we, we have, to, have to achieve. And this yeah, trust in the possibility of change. A, a comrade from the, who is uh, in the national leadership of KPÖ, he, he phrased it like this, that the, the strategy is kind of to have a critique inside the commodity form become a critique of the commodity form. Still, also kind of vague, but I think this, I hope I kind of filled it with life now and filled it with, with content, and I think this is something that, that we have to uh, approach. What is the ultimate goal of a communist party, in your opinion? To build socialism. <laughs> I'm not happy with that, right? That's I mean, not enough. Could, you, could you elaborate a bit on that? I think the prime goal should, I'm trying not to just uh, spout phrases here, but is to, to organize the working class. But before that, I think, and this relates really to this, to this trust thing, is to raise and actively build class consciousness, which again relates back to... Uh, what we previously talked about, this paralysis, we need to get out of this paralysis and this only works through, through building class consciousness and going from the defensive to the offensive position 
and really finding out where it hurts and then putting the finger in this wound. Like how? Like what is the ultimate goal of the party, not only in Austria but of a Marxist and Communist party in general? Um, how does it relate towards the aim of establishing socialism? Well, I mean, the party, of course, should be the organizer of the working class and specifically of the working class's everyday interests. In that sense, I think the, the goal must to be, it's a bit, bit of a phrase, but of course it's uh, more important than ever considering what we discussed before, in raising class consciousness. And I think this must mean to gain back a sense in the working class of being an actor of history, of being an, an actor maybe of history, but first being an actor of one's own life and from that building to being an actor of history at large and from that to building on being the actor of history at large. This is one of the central presuppositions of the possibility of revolutionary change, of course, of the working class having class consciousness, seeing itself as the actor, the vehicle for social change and having the self-consciousness to go for it, so to speak. And this is really the construction side that we have to be working on right now, considering what we talked about before. I cannot stop mentioning it, but this corporatist, these after-effects of corporatism, this paralysis uh, in the working class. This has to be overcome and I think this is the central objective of the Austrian Communist Party and of any Communist Party. But do you party. think this is the moment for it now, where it can be done? I'm cautiously optimistic that, yes, I mean, we kind of touched upon it. I think with these two factors, with this dichotomy of the Cold War being gone and uh, corporatist paralysis of society and economy being to some extent gone, this really opens up possibilities that were not there in Austria and in Western Europe and in the world. Amir, thanks a lot for the interview. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I like talking about uh, what's going on in Austria and what it has to do with the world. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, Amir, take care. Yeah, thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. One of the ways that Platypus investigates the death of the left is through public fora, like panels, teach-ins, and lecture series. Here we invite our members, regular participants, and other leftists to openly discuss an aspect of the left, whether this be the leftist orientation towards a current event, a certain topic like imperialism or gender and sexuality, or a significant figure or event in the history of the left. The goal is to draw out how present phenomena on the left relate to the problems and tasks the left has inherited from its own history, and in doing so, to repose the question, what has the left been and what can it yet become? Given that Platypus is a member-driven organization, every event is organized by committees of members on a chapter or regional level. As we are now coming to the new year, we've invited our members Danny, Fideas and Ryan to reflect on the favorite events they've helped to organize in 2021 
And we've also asked them how we've used our events to guard the left's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what their resolutions are for continuing our self-education in 2022. So good morning to Melbourne, Ryan. How are you doing? And tell us about your um, last year's highlights. Good morning. 2021 was really the breakout year for Platypus Melbourne. We had started with just a few readers in 2020, but uh, we came into 2021 with four members and about 10 other readers. And we ended the year with about six members and probably about 30 to 35 different readers. The big headline items were that we had our first panels this year. But our first panel in March was on the question, what is capitalism and why should we be against it? And we thought that was a, a good topic to begin. And it was particularly successful because we had three quite different speakers on there. We had a sort of famous or infamous Australian Maoist, Arthur Dent, who was an Orthodox Maoist involved around 68 in, in the 70s. We had a post-Trotskyist, Rurik Davidson, and we had an academic Marxist, Rory Duffersey. And so the interesting thing about the panel that we found was that all three of them sort of agreed on the definition of capitalism. They all said that capitalism was a mode of production. And that was interesting because all three of them had vastly different political implications of that statement. And so they sort of found a moment of agreement in the definition, but they sort of wandered around in diff vastly different political conclusions uh, in terms of way they could relate to that statement in the 21st century. What did it mean to just either bemoan capitalism or to critique it? Danny, can you um, elaborate on your last year's highlights? Yes, um, I thought the highlight from 2021 was a panel that we put on in March on the 28th um, called From Protest to Politics, What Was the Millennial Left? We had another panel um, kind of in the fall in September um, on Occupy. And I think that panel was a highlight for me, this March one, which uh, involved uh, Connor Mosh, uh, John Judas, um, Ingar Solti, John Lavelle, and myself. It was a way of reflecting on kind of a um, very important moment in the millennial left consciousness, especially around the formation of something like Jacobin or even the term millennial Marxism, which was Occupy, and then 10 years later. And I thought it, the kind of conversation that showed up both on the From Protest to Politics panel, what was the millennial left, and from the Occupy panel was how the Trump phenomena sort of refracted kind of the left's understanding of what had happened in uh, the Occupy moment kind of the way in which this history is still being digested. And that actually goes to kind of what we try to do in Platypus, which is to bring up what we believe might be undigested phenomena or even obstacles uh, ideologically amongst the left. Actually, Danny, I really liked what you said there in terms of usually when we hold events like panels or interviews or teach-ins, as part of that digesting activity that these public fora do, you get new iterations and responses to the initial initiative. What is it that these events offer that you don't really get in the other activities like the reading group? I would say that the first thing that is immediately on display is differing histories of Marxism. 
you'll rarely see panels here in Australia or, or any sort of events that will have people from quite different perspectives. And we notice that, that the panelists will speak in a particular way when they know they're talking to someone who doesn't actually have the same historical understanding of Marxism that they do. It's the relation of our reading group, our coffee breaks, our um, panels, and that's where you can get a kind of way in which history um, mediates um, these ideas, right? Like, what does Lenin mean today? What does Luxembourg mean today? And you might not just get that if you just read the book by itself. To get uh, Fidias into the discussion, tell us um, what you experienced um, in your group, and please tell us where you're situated at the moment. I passed some of my time in the in the U.S. where I'm I'm studying, and I participated in a chapter here. But I also participated in the Greek chapter because it has been online mostly due to COVID, so I was able to participate. I helped uh, organize the a COVID panel in November, which I think was the the most uh, successful event we had this year. We decided to to hold this after. We noticed that our chapter discussions increasingly revolved around uh, the pandemic and how it was handled. But, uh, we were not sure whether COVID is a political issue. Uh, we thought it probably wasn't, and therefore we, resist we resisted holding COVID panels. But gradually, at least some of us changed our minds and argued that the pandemic has a political si uh, side. And I, and I think it's accurate. Like, it's, COVID is a crisis with huge repercussions, with huge political repercussions. And definitely the greatest crisis of my lifetime. So we thought it was a good idea to have the panel. And could you, could you say how, how, how do you feel about your own participation in the panel and maybe how the chapter then digested the the panel going forward platinum's members can also be symptoms in the panel as a participant i was also like a symptom i was not there to just say what we what the organization thinks is the, the right take on on on, on covid we, we don't have like the organization doesn't have a take on covid we have different views on covid there there is more than one view shared by members Uh, so, yes, panels are also opportunities to help us clarify our own views and, and help the internal discussions. And, and particularly when, an issue, when in an issue there is a lot of like internal uh, like tension and disagreement and different views, it's often we consider it best to try to objectify the disagreements and by also including disagreements from the rest of the left rather than continuing on our, on our own to just discuss the issue. So in, in the Greek chapter, for example, we had more than one view on, on COVID. There was disagreement and we, we thought it was best to, instead of just continuing to over and over discuss this, to, to do an event about it since it was in our minds. The panel was very productive as far as, as symptomology goes uh, because it focused more on the possibility of working class politics during the pandemic as opposed to discussing various 
state policies with regards to to COVID and healthcare. Our panel seemed to revolve around the issue of the weakness of the left to affect the course of the pandemic. Sometimes our panels, they might lead to frustration. And it's not that the platypus panel is trying to be frustrating. It's not like that's the, the goal. But rather, I think, you know, and Pam has used this great phrase before, productive frustration. Meaning sometimes that's kind of objectified and kind of embodied and put into a person as if Fideus himself was the frustrating person and not the situation, which is one that people can recognize that you would need something like an independently organized class in order to, you know, really take up this problem of COVID. And yet we don't have that in the current situation. And part of why, you know, Platypus exists to host this conversation is to try to bring some kind of soberness into, not just soberness, but also historical consciousness into what does it mean when people justify or relate to the history of Marxism as a, a means of their understanding in the present. And that can be understood as something frustrating towards maybe uh, members on a, on a panel or just, just the panel itself. So Ryan, um, you in Australia, you organized um, another iteration of the COVID and the left panel. And um, you also did the interview with um, Sue Bolton for the podcast um, for the episode 41. What was your experience with the left and the symptoms in the room? And um, according also to what um, Danny and Fedias were saying. As I mentioned before, we had the longest lockdowns in the world here and some of the most draconian at times. Largely throughout most of it, the left had been supporting the lockdowns. As the pandemic was looking to sort of start winding up, or the restrictions to start winding up, Uh, sort of three quarters of the way through 2021, we had sort of an explosion of union political activity where there was protests amongst the unions against vaccine mandates and against uh, restrictions placed on their work about um, particularly around this issue of tea rooms where pe people would have their lunches in air-conditioned rooms with ventilation, etc. And seemingly out of nowhere, it boiled over into some... Uh, first, a violent attack on a union office, but then also into a, a wave of mass protests. So one of the interesting things that happened in our panel, which was completely unplanned, was there was a group called the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism that had started plastering the whole city of Melbourne with posters saying, um, don't scab, get the jab, meaning if you, don't, if you oppose vaccine mandates then that is the same as being a scab. A founder of one of the Trotskyist groups that we had on our panel, Ian Rintoul, is a founder of a group called Solidarity. He wrote a strong article saying that this is, that slogan was something that no unionist should use, that it, it, it is a particular watering down of union consciousness, at least. And uh, we also had on the panel a anarchist, an anarcho-communist, Tommy Lawson, who um, opened his panel remarks by quoting Bakunin, you know, against the state. But it turned out that he was actually the one, and he said this during the panel, he was actually the one that suggested that slogan to the group campaign against racism and fascism. So we had a bizarre interaction where there was an anarchist who was sort of advocating 
for state intervention and state uh, regulation of who was allowed to work and when. On the, on the other hand, we had a Trotskyist who was sort of opposing that position. One of the more interesting features that we, we get to experience when putting on a panel is how the panel curation, so the curation of the participants, bring up these really bizarre interactions. And maybe this is going back to what Danny was saying about productive frustration, that we try to productively create these these tensions. Could one of you guys maybe come in and, and say what was the moment where these interactions between panelists really showed off like the good curation? I have one example. So this was a panel that I moderated, um, which was our Occupy panel. And during the Q&A, there was kind of a reflection that came up about sort of the Tea Party and then the Trump voters. And I think Ken Nabb, who was on that panel, he began responding by kind of saying, yes, you know, the the Trump voters, like they, they have a real basis that they would need to potentially be organized for socialism. He basically was putting something more affirmative towards um, them having a real um, discontent and likening it as well to the Tea Party, which was closer to the Occupy moment. So, you know, Occupy is maybe perhaps a response to the Tea Party. And then the kind of, one of the fellow uh, panelists, um, Arun Gupta, um, kind of pushed back in that sense. And that sort of caused Ken to then kind of somewhat revise his, his response in that sense. And I guess I, I bring that up because sometimes in isolation people can have certain views, but then when they kind of you know, interact with other uh, parts of the left, it can cause them to reflect on them or maybe doubt them, um, consider it like, I don't know, what's the phrase, nighttime thoughts, like that's not what I really meant or, or something like that. So I thought that was that that um, highlighted the way in which this is still a a, um, a phenomena that is, that there's some ambivalence about in terms of Trump. In our panel, I wouldn't say that we had uh, the amazing moment of revelation or anything, but I think it was an opportunity to have both people very critical of the the pandemic handling and the mandates, uh, and also. People on the opposite side, and these sides usually then just demonize each other on social media. And we had, uh, but we have them discuss, and it went fine despite the tense topic. But what we care about is the the differences and the the ambivalence. And I think our, our panel was successful uh, in demonstrating uh, two kinds of ambivalence. So we had on one side some panelists viewing the state as the good welfare state. And we had the, the anti-vaxxer panelists with the, viewing the state as like bad and authoritarian. And the panelists affirmed one or the other side of the state, unable to realize that they are two sides of the same coin. We had a German iteration of the COVID and the left panel too. And what I found uh, impressing was how the left, as different as they were in their bubbles, um, where they come from, where they agree upon. And that COVID is a state of emergency and one has to do something right now. And I think this is also um, the difficulty in, in doing a panel on COVID um, for us is 
we don't want the left to talk about the policies they would support or not, but we want to focus on the politics. And this is where we, we push them into these, what Danny called the productive frustration. It's, it's exactly um, with the politics. And this is what I um, think um, Ryan also said when, as you told us that um, you um, chose um, the what is capitalism panel as a first panel but you didn't want to hear analysis uh, from the left what capitalism was but what does it mean politically that's why we had our panel our coronavirus panel late in the in the pandemic essentially because we were worried that the left was just going to talk about policy and we didn't want to have a debate over which policy was going to cause the less less harm Uh, it was only after those politicization incidents amongst the unionized working class that we actually decided to do the panel. And we talked to Stefan Hein, who was the organizer of the, the German panel, and he helped us a lot in, in our curation. So it was great to have that kind of international collaboration to figure out how to direct the conversation away as much as possible from policy which is somewhat of an ephemeral subject and you know the left will have a new iteration of policy at every different stage of the the pandemic and the, those things are easily forgotten what we wanted to try and capture in our panels as well is capture the left's thinking at a particular time and get them on the record so that when the left does undergo sort of a voluntary self lobotomy in you know post pandemic where whenever that may be that we have a capturing of the way that the left was, was thinking at that time and how they were justifying their positions historically and politically. I, I just wanted to say, you know, in terms of the way in which you could categorize uh, a lot of our, our panels, which is that on the one hand there are panels that I guess you could say are suggested by platypus members, so like what is capitalism? These are topics that maybe look like they're more perennial, that you could have that question in 2011, you could have that question in 2021, and then seemingly more specific related to the activism of the time. And in a sense, those seem to be more suggested by the left. So like the COVID and the left panel, anti-fascism in the age of Trump a few years ago, uh, the police brutality protest panel that we did in 2020. But when you look at all the panels altogether, this is also something that kind of um, is then symptomatic of the way in which the uh, left kind of relates its own history. And this is part of what we try to do in Platypus is to show this continuity, meaning the what is capitalism panel and the COVID and left panel, in a sense, it, it kind of ought to be the same topic, which is that COVID, however it's expressed, is mediated through the social crisis, even if it's a biological viral phenomena, it's still experienced and expressed through social relations. And so it should be kind of the same question as what is capitalism to some degree, I'm not saying obviously completely identical. And yet it seems to require to ask two separate different questions of tell me what is capitalism and then you know someone will tell you well read the communist manifesto and das kapital and then tell me about covid and it's like well i don't know if i'm for the shutdown and that kind of distinction right there that kind of holding apart right there and so this is why in the platypus review as well as on this podcast you know it, it could be very fruitful to relate all of these together to show that there's a continuity and thinking about seemingly perennial and seemingly uh, immediate. I think also on that point, Danny, is that we certainly noticed this after our What is Capitalism panel, where once you churn those waters up, 
then the question lingers in the mind of everyone, like all of our readers will keep, you know, referring during our reading group to, oh, remember when so-and-so said this on the What is Capitalism panel? It unsettles like the bedrock of history. It all becomes just loose mud again that you can sift through and try and find meaning for the left out of that sediment. Yeah, at the very least, our panels are... They're objectifying the left of our moment, basically, for posterity. So if, if someone in 50 years' time wants to see what the left was about in the early 20th, 21st century, they can listen to our panels and, our, and read our transcriptions of our panels. This intervention through the panels manages to have an effect on... a further effect on, like, uh, on the left that's... Uh, harder to to judge uh, because like in my experience it has been become harder and harder to find good symptoms for panels and given that we want the the best the best panel is possible it has become increasingly difficult to to find the interesting takes that channel some of the history of the left that's a bit of a bombshell for this. We'll check. We'll check back in in five years. We'll see how it goes. That said, what are the New Year's resolutions? What are the the projects? Yeah, tell us what what you want to do the next year. Some kind of tendency that I've noticed, which was partly because of the situation of COVID, that people were locked in their homes, didn't have much to do except read ginormous texts like Capital or The Logic. I think that is somewhat characteristic of the kind of newly politicized left now. I've noticed that various left groups are partaking in um, very uh, extensive, even exegetical reading groups, that they're going to read like a philosophical text, the anti-during, like that's how you're going to introduce Marxism to people. And I think that means a few things. I think one, it reflects the way in which there's a sense that the millennial left is either stalemated or at an end and that it's you know the zoomers have to pick up the ball in some way and so some sense of needing to reflect and have a better theoretical sense than perhaps the millennials rendering secondary of things and focusing on you know the sanders campaign or the corbin campaign and kind of activism and that we're going to get a theory down this has been sort of my experience with the um the kind of Zoomer generation that I've met on campuses, they're like instantly asking me about very deep texts that I did not know at all when I was their age. And so I think that is a, a phenomena going forward. Even like, you know, I would like to put on a panel that's just like, what is Marxism? Why do we need Marxism? Meaning Platypus has done what is socialism? What is social democracy? The death of social democracy. But what is Marxism? Why do we need that at all? Like, is this really what we need? I don't know. We started planning a panel on the question of uh, a new political formation of the last, so three years, called the Victorian Socialists, which is sort of a left unity front between various socialist groupings, largely Trotskyist. And we'd sort of planned it, but we're just waiting till there's some sort of possibility to do it in public again. And for that, we wanted to engage um, Victoria's Australia's largest socialist organisation, which is called the Socialist Alternative. We've had plenty of good interactions with them, but we haven't been able to get them on a panel or in print yet. But, uh, you know, we, we really want to hear what they say. And also there's another group we want to engage this year called the Australian Communist Party, 
which is a sort of a split from the Communist Party of Australia that sort of dissolved post-Soviet Union and the sort of new sort of Stalinist formation that has a lot of online groupings and organises um, uh, food distribution to, to homeless, etc. So it's, they're an interesting group that we've wanted to engage with. So I think it's important to to discuss more the issue of, uh, of the state and the left so I can see a more specific panel about, about the state or maybe even about the, the collapse of liberalism. I think those, those issues are related and are blind spots on the left today. So my home country is Cyprus, which is a different country from Greece, though we speak the same language. And I've long wanted to like manage to start a chapter there as well. I've, I've recruited a few people, but we are spread out in different... Some of them are in different countries right now. We have an election in a year. Uh, I think it's a good opportunity to have a panel on our leftist party. So Cyprus has the biggest communist party in Europe in terms of percentage uh, of votes, they, they get like 25 to 30% of the vote, it's the second biggest party. But it's really just uh, like Syriza, or even worse. Again, everyone on the left uh, in Cyprus ends up supporting this party when elections come, so it would be good to like objectify this symptom in a panel. I'm just going to wrap that up, guys. Thank you so much for participating. Uh, well, Happy New Year, everybody, and Happy New Year to you, Lisa. Cheers, Happy New Year. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi, Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!